Kia ora koutou. Welcome to the New Zealand General Practice Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Joe Scott-Jones. Earlier seasons of this podcast focused on joy in practice. This season is an opportunity to listen in on monthly conversations I have with Dr. Dave Mapleston, organized for the Pinnacle GP Network. Dave shares insights into important clinical changes he picks up in his reading as a part-time GP and advisor to the Health and Disability Commissioner. I hope you enjoy. Kia Dave. Kia Koto. Uh, my name is Joseph Jones. I'm the clinical director at Pinnacle and a GP here with my colleague Dave Mapleston. Do you want to tell us a bit about yourself, Dave? Kia Dave Mapleston. I'm part-time GP, part-time critiquer of my colleagues and work at HDC, part-time uh, doing a bit of work in clinical governance. General raconteur and lover of life and certainly a, a definite mentor and guide to me. Dave, thank you for sharing your some clinical snippets for October 2023. Yeah, we're a little bit um, late off the mark this month, but uh, we've both been otherwise occupied. But yes. uh, starting starting from the outside this month, which is the skin with acne. And in fact, why I chose acne was a case I've looked at recently where a um, young guy had been started on uh, isotretinoin, been given the blood test form for the for his baseline tests when he took the prescription but never got the baseline tests done started the prescription and died from totally oh. unrelated causes a couple of months later but the family on reviewing the notes were concerned amongst many other things that the fact that he'd been given or started on this medication without um uh, any baseline monitoring oh my god so it's kind of one of those nightmares where you think you've done everything right and it catches up on you. But so a couple of recent articles um, around acne. So Goodfellow Gems, two two recent Goodfellow Gems articles looked at acne treatment. And one was a a recent meta-analysis of treatments, which concluded the most effective treatment was oral isotretinoin, but followed by triple therapy containing a topical antibiotic, uh, a topical retinoid and benzoyl peroxide for monotherapies oral or topical antibiotics or topical retinoids have comparable efficacy for inflammatory lesions, while oral or topical antibiotics have less effect on non-inflammatory lesions. So the only topical antibiotic available in New Zealand for acne appears to be um, clindamycin and benzoyl peroxide with the trade name of DUAC. Mm -hmm. And the cheapest I could find, it's not subsidized, cheapest I could find online was $64 for a 30 gram tube. So it's not an inconsiderable expense. The the, um, article noted that topical um, mupiracin and fusitic acid should not be used as topical antibiotics for acne because of the the resistance side of things, and they're generally reserved for clearing bacterial nasal carriage. Yeah. But that um, also led on to the the monitoring side of patients on isotretinoin, because I think we use it much more freely now than we once did. And an earlier Goodfellow Gem had looked at an expert opinion study which suggested that the current recommendations for monitoring of patients on oral isotretinoin were excessive. They talked about a, a review that on actual lab test results that found even with 40 milligrams or more per day, there were few laboratory ab- abnormalities and most New Zealand prim- primary care clinicians really prescribe above 10 milligrams per day. Okay. Um, so the recommendation or the consensus statement from this expert opinion study was to check ALT and triglycerides within a month prior to initiation and at peak dose, but not monthly or after treatment completion unless there were abnormalities. Right. 
Um, they said don't check CBC or basic metabolic panel parameters at any point during treatment and don't check other liver tests, or except we tend to get the panel, uh, or lipid tests or CRP. Right. So just I wanted to see how does that link in with, with the various resources that are available to us. So 2017 BPAC article tends to support this approach. It just says a pragmatic approach would be to ensure there's a recent assessment of the patient's hepatic function and lipid profile and to monitor patients with risk factors, e.g. past history of hepatic dysfunction or hyperlipidemia, and to reduce dose in those patients with persistently raised serum lipids or transaminase. The uh, New Zealand formulary says monitor liver function one month after starting, then every three months. Measure serum lipids one month after starting, then every three months. And health pathways, interestingly, has variable ad advice depending on where you where you live. Yes. So again, here's the postcode postcode stuff coming up. Midlands say no need for further testing um, unless clinically indicated if results at one month are normal. That's liver function lipids CBC. And and another one, Canterbury, for example, says. Uh, liver function, lipid, CBC, pretreatment at one month, then every three months. Mm. Um, so I, th I think a pragmatic approach is, seems to be a reasonable one. And, and any any out of those options that have been discussed, I think th there is evidence to support any of those approaches. But all all do, re do refer to the pretreatment or recent pretreatment test. So you've got a baseline. Uh, you've got a baseline and then you've got a, you do have a an in-treatment Result either at peak dose or just a timed follow up. Yeah. And um, I think for, for most of us, most of the patients will just be on the 10 milligrams. So it would be, you know, maybe doing it at one month if you're not planning to increase the dose. And if it's normal, then that's, that's all you need to do. Yeah. But just reminder, because again, here's, you know, unless you're constantly referring to New Zealand formulary or the pamphlets the the information pamphlets the pregnancy prevention requirements which are presented in nzf which you know i take to be the standard so if when you're using this drug in the females of childbearing potential exclude pregnancy up to three days before treatment and start treatment on day two or three of the menstrual cycle and exclude pregnancy every month during treatment unless wow. there are compelling reasons to indicate that there is no risk of pregnancy uh, and also um, check a uh, pregnancy test again five weeks after stopping treatment. Wow. And the, pre the pregnancy test, uh, they say perform the test in the first three days of the menstrual cycle. Females must use effective contraception for at least one month before starting treatment during and for at least one month after. Yeah. It should be using at least one method of contraception, but ideally two. Uh, mini pill is not considered sufficiently effective. And barrier methods should not be used alone, but can be used in conjunction with other contraceptive methods. So quite comprehensive pregnancy avoidance advice, which if you get a complaint because somebody has become pregnant on isotretinoin, it would be helpful to know that you know you're aware of the advice and have um, have instructed or discussed it with the patient. I, I feel that that's a definite step up on. Um, the information that I remember reading and when when this first came in, um, which was really about using two forms of contraception and, you know, you mustn't fall pregnant type of type of advice. Um, but that's that monitoring and testing and the proving uh, is definitely a step up. But I guess, I mean, one, one way around this, I presume, would be as long as the patient's fully informed that you, you know, you give the patient a couple of pregnancy tests, kits to take with them with the, with the advice of when to do the test and, and hand that responsibility to the patient.
right when you're yeah. renewing you're renewing the script every three months with the with the pregnancy test kits thrown in or whatever yeah but i i think your reminder to regularly uh, review new zealand formulary and the and the information that's available in there that's the that's the core source of truth really around around the monitoring that we should be doing yeah absolutely and i think if you're prescribing a drug that you are not particularly familiar with um i think it's well worthwhile having a look and I, I find it re- the, the patient information leaflets I find really valuable because they're so easy to access and print off, and then the, and then you have really given the patient plenty of information to make yeah. the informed choice. And I think the other thing I would I would just say is that there's no shame in saying to a patient this is not something that I prescribe every day, um, so I'm going to do a bit of research and make sure that I'm completely up to date with it before I give you the prescription. I will be in touch um, tomorrow or the day after and let you know, you know, what the process is. Um, so you, you can, and, and patients really appreciate that you're going to think about them and you're going to take your time and you're going to um, give, them that, um, uh, give them that thought and energy. So I know it's, you know, in a restrained workforce and, you know, the, the working situation they're in, those sorts of things, you know, are really difficult to do. But patients really appreciate it when you just say, look, I, I'm, I'm going to give you a, li- a little bit of thought to this and then I'm going to be in touch with you. So, yeah, no, I, t- I totally agree. And I think um, another case I looked at, you know, we can't be expected to, to keep, you know, I don't know how many drugs there are in New Zealand formally, but to keep in our minds, you know, an awareness of the severe side effects. But this, um, the case was um, a patient who was prescribed long-term nitrofurantoin and the GP and, and a GP who did a repeat prescript were not aware of the risks of pulmonary fibrosis. And this patient got pulmonary fibrosis, wasn't recognised, was kept on kept on with the nitrofurantoin, was sent to hospital eventually with his deteriorating uh, respiratory function and actually died as a consequence of the side effect. And, and so it's... You know, it's can have can have significant impact. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, I think use the use the resource, use the resources that are there. That's the tell me, line. tell me something uplifting, Dave. <laughs> well, this, um, well, yeah. Perhaps the next one's quite is quite um, quite appropriate, which is GP research review uh, issue two twenty two looked at a UK study on prescribing and burnout so oh, yeah okay probably is quite Thank relevant <laughs> um so i looked at the, the association between strong opioid and antibiotic prescribing and practice way to gp burnout and wellness now they chose an odd time to do this which was between december 2019 and april 2020 <laughs> okay um, so there might have been there might have been some confounding <laughs> factors <laughs> i suspect but they did find um an association between greater strong opioid prescribing and greater antibiotic prescribing and increased emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, job dissatisfaction, diagnostic uncertainty, and turnover intention in GPs. Um, and GPs who worked longer hours exhibited strong opioid and antibiotic prescribing. Interesting. So, so I know that I know that one of our PHO uh, colleagues in New Zealand monitors um, certain aspects of prescribing as part of a suite of things that they look at for practices or GPs at risk, and will you know look for changes in um, behaviour around opioid prescribing and hypnotic prescribing, and then that might be one of the flags that might sort of trigger a professional conversation and an offer of support. It comes from a patient of compassion. 
and um and i think that's really um it's really interesting that there's that they're, they're saying that there's there's evidence of a link between those things but also yeah and so you can uh, if you want to see what your own opioid prescribing is like and how how it's altered over time and how it compares with with your practice colleagues and nationally um, that data is available on the um, Hayako Haringa yeah. dashboard. So, yeah. you, and you can get some brownie points for doing an audit or doing a reflection or whatever. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, yeah. but the um, just just a, a push too for the um, EAP schemes for anyone that that is feeling burned out or approaching burnout. Um, that's available to all um, RNZ CGP members. So free EAP services, confidential. They've got clinical psychologists, budget and financial advisors, legal advisors, and other professional uh, other professionals that, that might uh, be able to support you. And that's available on on their website. Yeah. And I think the MPS and MASS also offer similar uh, service if you're a member of those organisations. Uh, yeah, and lo lots of em employer organisations and PHOs offer it as well. Um, so you know, there's there's um, a variety of ways of accessing that support and help. And there is a yeah. webinar on Goodfellow Unit uh, called "Practical Tips to Encourage Wellbeing and Avoid Burnout." So I'll put a link yeah. of that to that in the uh, in the snippets as well. Does it include wine tasting? Uh, maybe whiskey tasting. Whiskey tasting. <laughs> a quicker way to quicker quicker way to oblivion, I think. <laughs> the next uh, one is just really some practical stuff on some medication withdrawals. So medications that. Uh, will not be available in the in the near future. So um, MedSafe has announced that approval for Folkadine to be sold in New Zealand will be withdrawn on the 12th of January, 2024. Oh, wow. Um, and it's, it's quite interesting why it was done. It was made, a, a decision was made on safety grounds as there is a small risk that taking Folkadine in the previous 12 months may make patients undergoing general anesthetic more susceptible to anaphylaxis. Oh, you're kidding. Um, during surgery, if it involves neuromuscular blocking anesthetic agents. So it seems like a bit of a, uh, a massive knee-jerk response, but uh, presumably there have been some fatalities or, or near misses as a consequence of this. Is there anything else that reduces cough? Um, I don't know what's in Linkedus and G's Linkedus. Um, it used to have um, morphine in, didn't it? Geez, yeah. I mean, codeine, codeine, sometimes I prescribe codeine if it's particularly bad, but you stop the cough, but you stop the bowels at the same time. So, um, wow. Um, that, I mean, it, it, you, honey and lemon and hot water does as much good as every other cough medicine. It, I, I'd, yeah. I'd certainly carried in my head some information that Falcadine of all of them had some evidence that it actually did did suppress cough. Um, so I think the, uh, those mucilage type agents, honey of which is one of them, as you say, are just as effective as most most stuff that costs. Except you, for some reason, and again, I, I think it's to do with botulism. You shouldn't be using honey in very young children. Or right. there's some okay. weird thing. That, um, yeah. Okay. So the recommendations for health professionals include inform consumers about the small but potential risk of perioperative anaphylaxis. To, in, to neuromuscular blocking agents from prior falconine exposure. So I don't think we need to do a, an audit of everyone we've prescribed falconine or who might have gone and picked it up from the pharmacy in the previous 12 months. But um, if, if you're going to prescribe it in the next, before it's taken off in January, maybe that should be included in the, um, in the informed uh, consent side of things. Should I revisit the burnout? Thanks, well, Dave. I? Thanks, Dave. 
So we're, all, I, all, I'm, all I'm reading out is what's written in the... Um, in yeah, the, don't in shoot the messenger. Written, so, don't right. shoot the messenger. Okay, all right. The second one that's being withdrawn, and again, uh, probably about now, supplies will be exhausted, is um, triazolam. So the 125 microgram tablets have been exhausted and supplies of the 250s are expected to run out about now, October, November 2023. And both tablets are being delisted on 1st of February 2024. Uh, so again, advice from Pharmac is this may be time to review appropriateness of long-term benzodiazepine prescribing. And uh, again, Heiako Haringa on their website have got some really good resources to aid in, in uh, that decision-making, including advice on withdrawal strategies. Yeah. And um, yeah, for those people who are chronically on triazolam, there must be a, a process for transition. Um, yes. The, uh... Uh, so, so the Hakaringa include that. And also, if withdrawal is not successful, um, they've got some advice on alternatives and, and cool. how to transition to an alternative as well. Yeah. Gout, which seems to be a, a popular one we've visited a few times. Yes. Uh, this is just a plug for the gout guide. So there's a link in the snippets to this uh -huh. resource. So it builds on findings from several um, national gout projects, including the Whanganui Gout Stop Program and the Pro Gout, a uh, Pro Care Gout Collaborative. Basically, there's a whole range of really practical resources, including team education resources, treatment pathways point of care testing advice, um, how to involve community pharmacy, standing orders, um, just a, a heap of stuff that if you if you want to choose gout as a project, you might want to attack everything you might ever need uh, available in one spot. Uh, it's a focus on, on improving inequities in gout diagnosis, treatment and outcome uh, with heaps of advice on, on and examples on how to approach this issue as a practice team. So they do refer um, in one of the resources to the Benny Check meter, which is a point of care um, meter that can look at blood glucose, cholesterol, and or uric acid, separate strips for each of those things. So if you're using it just for the gout project, you'd, you'd only want to buy the uric acid strips. But it's currently available from Pharmacy Direct, the meter for $82.70, and the uric acid test strips are uh, a little less than $2 per strip. So not, not a prohibitive resource to, um, I guess, to help those, those patients who you know are not going to get the blood test done when you hand them the form when they leave or, the, or you know, that chance to to catch people opportunistically when they come in for something else. That, that sounds almost too good to be true for that cost. So, yeah. Is it in, in terms of presumably if it's recommended by this group, they've looked at specificity and sensitivity and, you know, know where it fits in the in the guidance yeah no certainly it's the one that they that they were using and and um it, it seems a very reasonable sort of price that's extremely reasonable the oh wow i will um i will i will look at that because um yeah. yeah gout gout is a is a plague really for people in new zealand and um if anything that we can do that makes it easier to um monitor the the key thing is if you're treating to target then being able to provide somebody with a on the spot here's your uric acid we need to increase your 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 uric dose or whatever it is that you need to do or the reassurance that yes you're within target it's that's huge in terms of compliance and you know concurrence with medication yeah and immediate feedback those sorts of things so yeah, yeah i've just seen it i've just gone there again it's just dropped down to 69.90 so um oh. even more um even more affordable fantastic so yeah i'd really recommend going to that 
looking at that site and just um, looking at the resources that are available. It's yeah. uh, really quite incredible. Prostate cancer. Now, again, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm getting so confused about uh, what's happening in terms of screening uh, in this country, waiting for these new screening guidelines to come out because the 2015 ones seem to be moving further and further from what's happening internationally mm. at the moment. But the, um, the recent research review expert forum on prostate issues included an update on the efficacy of PSA as a screening tool. So they, they discussed the fact that um, in 2012, after 11 years of follow-up, initial research showed that the number needed to, to, to screen to prevent one death from prostate cancer was 1,055 and the number needed to diagnose was 37. So that would, that, and that to me, the thousand stuck in my mind, you know, how is it, is it worth screening when when you know, the most you're doing is, is saving one death in a thousand? But yeah. the follow-up of this study um, five years later, that was after 16 years of follow-up, gave different figures that uh, in order to prevent one death from prostate cancer, the number needed to screen had decreased to 570 mm. and the number needed to diagnose to 18 which is similar to other screening programs such as mammography. So the figures have changed, I guess, which in terms of are we now approaching the stage where where prostate screening in some form might be considered as a, a structured um, national screening program. Uh, or what's the nature of the screening that's done? Is that just the PSA? It's just the PSA. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, and, and around that, a 2013 study has shown that just a, a single PSA measurement for a patient in their 40s is very useful for, for predicting future risk of prostate cancer. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I think I, I remember that. Yeah, so they said the risk of Gleason 6 prostate cancer diagnosis by the age of 55 was 0.6% for men with a baseline PSA, this is in their 40s, of less than one. Yeah. But 15.7%. So that's 30 times more for men with a baseline PSA greater than or equal to one yeah. in their 40s. And the the article also um, talked about the increasing use of uh, multiparametric MRI of the prostate in men referred with elevated PSA, which has been shown to reduce the need for biopsy and subsequent overdiagnosis, yeah. um, although the false negative rate's around 10%. And also MRI-targeted transperineal biopsies being increasingly used, which has far lower rates of post-procedure sepsis compared with the transrectal biopsy. Yeah. I understand one of the few places that you can get this is in Tairawhiti in New Zealand. The transrectal biopsy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it was very interesting because I, I had, to, had the opportunity to talk to a urologist a couple of weeks ago and he was still doing um, transrectal biopsies because it's just easy to do them in an outpatient setting. Yeah. Um, whereas a transperineal, you, you need an anaesthetist. Um, or it's a bit more it's a bit more complex to set up yeah so they, they uh, also they talked about the use of the psma pet ct and again we've got a postcode lottery with this it's paid for in some centers in new zealand it has to be paid for by the consumer in other centers and it's about three and a half thousand dollars yeah um, but that enables accurate detection of prostate cancer spread and enables those patients who are who are looking for a cure um, to decide whether it's more appropriate to go to have a um, radical prostatectomy or to go for radiotherapy. So hopefully that will become, there'll be more consistent approach to availability of that at some stage once the ocean liner starts turning. Hopefully the, the move is towards more accessibility rather than less. Yes. <laughs> they, um, yeah, levelling up, that's what we need. 
But the um, the uh, article that the urologist presented two case studies or several case studies, but some I found quite interesting. So one was a 47-year-old man with a family history of prostate cancer presents requesting a PSA measurement. And the advice was test his PSA uh, because it's a very good measurement for stratification of future risk in this age group. Uh, and it's good to have that baseline. Oh, wow. um, and men with the BRAP2 mutation and history of early breast cancer and prostate cancer have a much higher risk of developing prostate cancer. And these individuals should be monitored carefully. So positive family history of prostate cancer, which is one first degree relative, I think two further separated relatives at a youngish age. Yeah. Um, but the BRCA2 is also confers significant uh, additional risk. And I'm not sure many men will know whether they've got that gene or not, but if there's a family history of sisters and mother with breast cancer, it's yeah. possibly worth considering. Yeah. The other one was a 72-year-old man with a PSA of 6.5. In this man, the PSA measurement should be repeated. Uh, his physiological age rather than just his chronolo chronological age should be considered. And if he's very fit and well for his age, then this should be included on the referral letter. As according to the current ministry guidelines, his PSA would not be considered abnormal, but given his potential lifespan, further assessment or treatment may be appropriate. So that's really saying don't, you know, don't use the guidelines as a Bible. This person, even though his PSA is not over 10, which 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 is the cutoff point for referral in the guidelines um, because of his age, because he's so well and may live another 15, 20 years, um, we should be referring. Whether that referral will get accepted or not, who knows, but we could always put a copy of the of this article in with the referral letter and see if that makes any difference. Gosh, I mean, where, where does that leave you in your role with the HTC when it comes to reviewing cases where somebody said i had a psa of 6.5 when i was in my 70s and um you know now i've got i'm 83 and i've got disseminated prostate cancer yeah well i think again we've we've got to say well the if, if the only guidelines um available to us and the accepted guidelines at the moment when we have to regard them as accepted because they haven't been withdrawn other 2015 ones i think if you followed those then it would be hard to say you were at fault yeah. Um, but equally, I mean, again, I know that's not the purpose of this. Uh, these, you know, the 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 session. But it, gosh, it's it's incredibly complicated from but, that medical legal perspective, isn't it? And when you look at when you look overseas, there are quite a few uh, international guidelines I've looked at where a, a PSA of greater than two point five in the forty and fifty year old age group is is the cutoff for for referring. Yeah. Um, whereas ours is four, uh, and I think. Anatomically, we're probably quite similar to Americans and speak for yourself, Dave. Other populations, and so there is the, the oh, position I, statement. I, I, I'm terribly sorry. I apologize, withdraw and apologize for that statement. That everybody listening, that's a terrible thing for me to say. I haven't, I haven't been. Um, okay. no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not uh, offended. It's fine. But the recommendations of PSA screening, the Australia and New Zealand uh, Society of Urologists, it's a position statement. So it's we can't say it's a guideline, but they. Um, uh, basically say, you know, ensure there's awareness as a public health initiative, uh, ensure appropriate counselling on the potential risks and benefits for an individual patient, yeah. uh, offer an individualised risk-adapted strategy for early detection to a well-informed man over 50 years of age with a life expectancy of at least 10 years, mm. but offer early PSA testing uh, to well-informed men at an elevated risk of prostate cancer. It's men greater than 45 with a family history, 
men of high risk of ethnicities greater than 45, that includes Māori, and men carrying the BRCA2 mutation over 40 years of age. Don't test people who have less than 10 years life expectancy. So when you've got your 85-year-old coming in with multiple comorbidities saying, I want my annual PSA, they're really saying, look, don't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, this is the, this is the one that the um, recommendation that I've found uh, slightly confusing. For men with an initial PSA test of greater than three, the use of risk stratification, which considers factors such as age, family history, DRE and PSA density can help guide the need for further testing, including MRI and biopsy. So it's kind of hinting that in some cases, PSA greater than three, you should be referring yeah, taking into account those other factors. Yeah, and presumably the reference to well-informed men means inform them. You know, the it's it's not it's not a question of saying, well, this person doesn't really know what they're talking about, so we don't need to worry about them. Yeah. And there's, and there there are plenty of uh, online resources you can assist with that as well. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, interesting, and one of the uh, I was at the World Organization of Family Doctors uh, conference in Sydney a couple of weeks ago, and um, Bibiana Bianca Martinez, who's going to be the Wonka president talked about health literacy and something really struck me. She said it's health literacy is a two-way thing. You know, people need to be well-informed and, you know, they we need to improve their health literacy, but we also need to be well-informed about people. So the health literacy works in, in both ways, um, which I thought was a really, I hadn't thought about it in that way before um, and um, that it's a two-way street, health literacy uh, so that was that was really interesting. I, I think, and it's. I mean, I I see this very often in in my complaints work because, you know, you'll get somebody who signed a consent form for for an operation, and you'll get a list of of things that were discussed. Yet the patient says, "I had no idea what X meant or Y went or whatever." Yeah, so there was yeah. no there was no reflection back on what do you understand from what we've just discussed. So, yeah. which I think is a really important part of that uh that yeah. two-way informed consent process yeah all right so you've okay. just confused me even more about psas thank you very Sorry, much. yeah but i think i, I guess that i guess it's signaling that things are going to change yeah. um i think signaling also that if you have concerns about a patient and um the you know whose psa is lower than what the guidelines say for referral there's no reason why you shouldn't refer them and say you know my assessment of their risk is that this requires referral um and the reasons why and wait for it to be rejected or acted upon dave Um, let's let's be more positive (laughs) um so september prescriber updates a couple of of practical bits that came out of this so first one was the emphasizing the importance of slow tapering of antidepressants to reduce the risk of withdrawal symptoms and discontinuation syndrome yeah um, that patients should be provided with information on antidepressant withdrawal and monitored for withdrawal symptoms. Uh, MedSafe gives out a, quite a handy patient information leaflet um, that you can download and print off uh, regarding stopping antidepressants. Mm-hmm. Link to that. Yeah. Uh, so just a simple um, two-pager. Uh, I, think we, which we, we, I recall that we talked about that so, before, yeah. but it's really, really important. And specific advice on regimes varies in factors such as dose, duration of treatment, drug pharmacokinetics, and emergence of symptoms, withdrawal or relapse need to be considered. 
So I've, there's been a change in recommendations regarding the, the sort of overall approach. So the recent NICE guidelines recommend a, a hyperbolic dose reduction strategy rather than a linear dose reduction strategy. Okay. Uh, and so that's each dose reduction being 50% of the previous dose reduction uh, and consider dropping that at lower doses to 25%. So tail, you know, a really long tail in the reduction process. Zeno's paradox you'll never get anywhere because you you do things you, you you have to get halfway first so and you have to get halfway to halfway and you have to get halfway to halfway so oh, right. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's how homeopathy works doesn't it <laughs> anyway the, i mean the problem that's, that's is... homeopathy works dave yes that's right that's exactly how homeopathy works but i think the problem we have is uh, we don't have many antidepressants that are available in the sort of form that you can make such a slow reduction yeah. in terms of a, of, a, of a daily dose reduction so you're left with every second day every third day type um shaving things off the tablet and stuff yeah adverse reactions associated with fluoroquinolones continue to uh, continue to be reported so tendinitis and tendon rupture so i'm well aware of that uh, in terms of achilles but it's been shown to occur at sites other than the ankle rotator cuff other other tendons so just to be aware of mm -hmm. that risk time to onset has varied from within 48 hours after treatment initiation to up to several months after discontinuation although i'm not quite sure how you decide there's a direct link yeah um, and a tendon rupture occurring three months after they stopped the drug if they were playing tennis at the time or whatever the risk is bigger as more in older patients patients with renal impairment or solid organ transplants and during treatment concurrent treatment with corticosteroids so i guess there if you've got somebody for some reason taking prednisone you know decreasing dose of prednisone and on their cipro at the same time uh, they are, are at increased risk peripheral neuropathy has also been reported in patients receiving fluoroquinolones and very rare cases of prolonged disabling and potentially irreversible muscle pain or weakness, joint pain or swelling, fatigue, depression, problems with memory, sleeping, vision, hearing, and altered taste and smell have also been reported. So maybe maybe we should reserve those drugs for, for very important cases. You think? <laughs> you think? Uh, in, in fact, ultimately, it's probably not that different to most of the other fine print of many other drugs we prescribe, yeah. apart from the tendon side of things. Yeah. Interestingly, I thought I'd thought there had been an association also with um, aortic uh, aneurysms uh, and a risk of causing rupture in patients with a pre-existing aortic aneurysm, but apparently wow. the evidence for that is extremely flimsy. Right, okay. Maybe yeah. more theoretical rather than real. Uh, and just to note that there's a new warning information on the data sheet for gabapentin. Women of childbearing potential must use contraception during treatment. Um, so New Zealand formulary states, females of childbearing potential should use two forms of effective contraception during treatment to avoid unplanned pregnancy. So when you're dishing it out for the neuropathic pain in a female of childbearing potential, just remember that they should not be getting pregnant. The way that's worded implies that taking gabapentin causes unplanned pregnancy, but I'm sure it's um, there are other issues right. with gabapentin. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yes, it is. That's interesting. I would have to yeah. perhaps let them know. Um, and just to round things off on a cheerful note, uh, there's a, <laughs> a, a very good uh, resource available. 
on end-of-life care resources, useful one-page algorithms on, on symptom control at end-of-life, which is adapted from the Ministry um, Te Ara Whakapiri resources, and they've been produced by Te Whataora Te Waipounamu. Uh, nice. So topics include pain management, uh, flow charts, pain management with renal impairment, dyspnea, breathlessness, agitation, delirium, restlessness, nausea, vomiting, and excessive respiratory secretions uh, at end of life. Um, and, and nicely coupled with this is a recently published BPAC article, um, Navigating the Last Days of Life, a General Practice Perspective, which again has got a huge amount of really useful and practical information. But the one pages are, um, uh, are really handy. The, um, again, I put a link in the snippets, but this is the one for pain in patients with renal impairment. Really nice algorithm to follow. Just you know, should make anticipatory prescribing and actual prescribing um, uh, much easier. And that's uh, that's it for September. For October. Oh, for October, sorry. For October, yeah. sorry, yeah. We're, and it is November, so they, you're really confusing me now. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> that's there are. I mean, again, just huge thanks to the to the work you put into this. Um, you know, starting us off with acne, um, ending with those resources around um, end of life care, and via burnout, uh, medication withdrawals around um, traslam, gout management, prostate again, through to those sort of uh, just reminders about the prescriber updates. I think the key messages once again are, I think maybe one of the things is for, for me is just to take think be okay about taking things slowly and deferring a, a decision, particularly about a medication that you're not 100% familiar with is um uh, is absolutely fine you know don't 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 hesitate to do that um and patients actually do appreciate that if i get patients complaining that their gb has to look up google while they were during while they were in the consultation i i say that is totally acceptable and, and normal behavior so. <laughs> good oh well thanks dave that's great i'll uh, we can put that into the guidelines Kakite, see you again next month, or later on this month, possibly. Will be. Number here. Thanks for listening. Please like and share this podcast if you found it useful. The show notes on the podcast website contain links to all the resources that we discussed. A video version of this podcast is available on the Pinnacle Practice website at pinnacle.co.nz. Kakite Arnold.